Hello, my name is Ken Young, Riverside County Superintendent of Schools. Welcome to another edition of Focus on Education. Today our topic is poverty and academic outcomes for the students in Riverside County. And um, we have with us today our guest, uh, Melissa Bazanos, former principal over at Edgemont Elementary School in uh, uh, Moreno Valley Unified School District. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, good morning, and Marion Leonard, who is the interim principal there since uh, Melissa left about five and a half, six months ago, something like that? Yes, in October. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, welcome to our show today. Thank you. We're, um, what we'd like to do is talk a little bit ab about um, the effects of poverty on students, student education. And just to kind of put a context together for this discussion, um, earlier last year, the what we call the PISA, the International Studies uh, re Exam results came out, where students from, 15-year-old students from 34 different industrialized countries uh, take an exam. And it's a similar exam in each one of the countries, and they um, focus on different subjects, and it comes in a three-year cycle. And one of the things that we saw in the results is that countries that have uh, very low poverty from the 34 industrialized nations that participated in the study, um, their students did very well in the exam. And countries where poverty was, was uh, higher um, did less well. And United States actually ranked in about the middle of the exam results. But one thing that's really interesting is when you look at the poverty in the United States um, and overlay that on there, then the United States did very, very well uh, as, a, as a nation. And back in 1964, when President Johnson was the president, he declared the war on poverty, and poverty in this country was around 19%, I believe. And um, our poverty rate in this nation is right around the same area that it was back in 1964. Um, the, the world, the nation's population has grown significantly since then. But we're finding that um, there's pockets of poverty all across the, the country. Uh, deep poverty in some areas and much less poverty in others. But when we look at the schools in, in the United States, and especially in Riverside County, we'll see that schools that come from high poverty areas, typically the students struggle. Um, and then students that come from low poverty areas um, generally do, do better academically. Part of this, I think, has to do with the language students speak <coughs> and the language <coughs> excuse me, that the testing is, takes place in and the educational uh, programs are delivered in. Um, but part of it has to do with their expe ex student expectations, perhaps uh, family expectations. And uh, in particular, I'd like to talk about Edgemont Elementary School because Edgemont, I believe, has, based upon the uh, participation rate for students that are eligible for the National School Lunch Program, which looks at household income levels to qualify for that. Uh, the last n time I looked, it was around 99%, uh, almost 100% what we would call a poverty school. Um, also, about 62% of the students, last I looked, were learning to speak the English language. Um, now, with those two obstacles, um, it looks like from 1999 when the state's academic performance index came out to measure student academic achievement in English language arts, mathematics, science, and social science. Um, so there's a story, I'm sure, behind this, this uh, phenomenal increase in, in student outcomes given the unique situations, almost 100% poverty and, and uh, almost it, about 62% English learners. So. How, how did this happen? 
uh, if you don't mind me asking. And just, you know, feel free to, to join answering this together. Sure. Um, well, I started in 2005, and prior to my arrival, there were some um, changes that had taken place with leadership and, and some of the staff. But when I first started, one of the things that we really focused on was school-wide consistency. And by that, I mean not only consistency with the implementation of our core curriculum, but consistency school-wide when it comes to scheduling. We all, we all of our grade levels had a consistent grade level schedule, which then we created a school-wide schedule. When we did that, that enabled us to be able to assign interventions as appropriate, um, design our special education services as appropriate. We could do all of our um, additional services for students. All of that worked within the same schedule. Therefore, there were no overlaps. Students weren't denied one opportunity to sac sacrifice one opportunity to get another opportunity. Everything worked together. So by implementing a school consistent school-wide schedule, that really helped us to um, uh, design our resources and focus those on student achievement. Um, we also had really focused professional development and it wasn't that every teacher got to select one thing they wanted to attend and come back and implement portions of that. Our professional development was also very consistent. We would select a topic for the entire school year and every teacher K-5 would go through the same training. Um, we did, we started off with things such as direct instruction and reciprocal teaching. That extended to a review of the five components of reading instruction from the National Reading Panel which are things like phonemic awareness, fluency, comprehension, vocabulary, and phonics. So that was something that we visited K-5 because we wanted all teachers, regardless of what grade level they taught, to understand the necessity of those building blocks of reading. Um, and then lastly, in terms of consistency, we had consistent school-wide interventions, that it wasn't up to a teacher um, on their own to determine when a child needed interventions. This was something that we had um, clear in entry and exit criteria for our intervention programs. And this evolved over, over several years where we started with paper and pencil assessments that were teachers were doing into a computer-based uh, universal screening, which meant that every child was going to receive the same battery <coughs> of assessments based on their grade level. And then that was then used as a way to gauge a student's success. And then they were, they were able to attend certain intervention services based on their scores on those, on those standardized um, universal screening assessments. Um. What, what kinds of things do students receive when, when they're identified as, as, um, as needing some support? Can you give me a couple of examples? Sure. Um, I'll start off by saying that the initial step for our student, we have a pyramid of intervention. So mm -hmm. if a teacher understands that a child is, is not at grade level, they have a certain amount, they, they have certain components of their core curriculum that they implement in the classroom. Um, not only do they use uh, universal access, which means different um, parts of their core curriculum, they use this to address students' needs, whether it be through uh, language support or um, there's a classroom management component. So, so those types of things are done in the classroom. Um, in addition to that, we have instructional aides that are trained in programs. We're using the Voyager Expanded Learning Program, and that allows these our instructional aides and our intervention team to assist students based on their particular needs. These are done for reading language arts, so they're addressing the needs in phonics, uh, reading comprehension, vocabulary, and things of that nature. Uh, Mary, do you have anything else you well, want to Well, I was going to say that as a person coming in uh, sort of off the street <laughs> um, and observing uh, structures already in place, what I note is that even we frequently get children coming in in the middle of the year. They trickle in all year long. Mm -hmm. And the immediate response of, of teachers, if they see uh, a student not having the skills that they should have is to send them down to the Title I lab and we have very competent people down there who assess them and can pinpoint 
the needs of children making the transition into our school. Um, so a student comes in into the school reading um, two grade levels below where they should be. And that comes up in the, in the uh, assessment that takes place. So what would be an intervention then that would be targeted towards uh, something like that? Because I'm assuming that reading below b basic reading or reading below where they should be is a pretty common problem and it's a foundational problem for helping students progress on. So just looking at that particular you know, issue, what are some of the things that we do to address that? <laughs> I see it from uh, two angles. Um, one is that it depends on the level they're at. If they're primary level, basically, they usually have pull-out time down in the Title I lab daily. Mm -hmm. um, there are also programs that Melissa can speak to more specifically, but in place for uh, the older students. Voyager, um, Read 180 mm -hmm. is um, uh, pretty standard in the district. So okay. it, it goes between the directed instruction and the, um, the programs that um, teachers can implement in the classroom. We were you, were you were mentioning you know, school-wide consistency is one of the um, one of the things you focus on professional development for staff, mm -hmm. the um, pyramid of interventions, if you will. Any more foundational pieces that had to be overlaid into the school to to take it where you needed to be? Um, yes, there were two other major focus areas. One was collaboration, and one was culture. Um, just briefly, collaboration. This started when the, uh, we had a group of teachers back in 2006 attend the training with the. Richard and Becky Dufour mm -hmm. and heard a lot about professional learning communities and when we heard about that and we heard about the successes that they were having with school-wide collaboration and uh, collaboration within grade level teams it really opened our eyes to what the power is within a grade level team and within a team of teachers that they have best practices that they're implementing and it's really about using the results of formative assessments so assessments that teachers give in the classroom to determine where some of the strengths of the teachers and then teachers can then collaborate with each other to determine who would be the best, well, I guess we could say example to assist their, their fellow colleagues with mm -hmm. strategies for, for addressing student weaknesses based on those formative assessments. Being in the interim, I'm continuing structures that already exist and one of the problems with what's happening where we have to let so many teachers go because of financial, uh, the financial situation is that um, uh, teachers get moved and the training becomes uneven again so you have can have all good intentions at the beginning when you mm -hmm. s start out and get your whole staff trained then you've got new people coming in who may or may not have had that training mm -hmm. so one of the things I have done is to continue that training the, the county offered the DeFore training this year and it was an advanced one but since our staff has been in process and has had that experience with the the um, PLC, the professional learning communities, um, I felt as though I had to search out those teachers who did not mm -hmm. have that training officially and send them off. And so uh, we sent two teams off, actually. Our district supported one team, but we used our Title I money to send another team to try to even out mm. the, the training. You had um, mentioned formative assessments, mm -hmm. and for our folks in the audience, that's uh, assessments that are periodic. When Correct. we talk about summative, we're talking about at the end of course or end of the year assessments. Some people believe that we assess or test too often in education and uh, other people um, believe that it's, it's okay. Um, you want to just touch, one, one of the two of you, want to touch on just for a minute the value in testing what we're teaching so that teachers know if students are learning and know how, whether they need to adjust things or just maybe touch on that for a minute? 
Sure. Um, since everything is based on the California content standards, our goal is to make sure that our students are meeting proficiency in the multitude of standards at each grade level. And so what we really want to focus on is assessments that measure a student's progress towards those standards. Now we're not talking enormous 80 to 100 question assessments. It's These are our briefer assessments or assessments that come out of the curriculum or they're designed based on what has been covered in the curriculum so that a teacher can gauge whether or not a student is attaining proficiency in particular standards. So if a teacher teaches a, a selection and there are particular standards that they cover, they can assess just those particular standards to determine did a child attain proficiency? If not, then the teachers can then collaborate to discuss what are some ways we can assist these students in our upcoming selections or our upcoming curriculum to make sure they do, a, a, they do attain these standards prior to these, the summative assessments that happen at the end of the year. And, and Melissa, the, the, uh, just to hit on one of those points, this collaboration piece mm -hmm. I think is most helpful when you have um, students in maybe in one classroom that may not be uh, getting, if you will, a particular content or standard piece where they might be in a neighboring classroom. And so those, in the collaboration process, one teacher is helping another teacher mm -hmm. maybe teach with a different strategy exactly. so that uh, their classroom students get it, if you will, like the other one did. Yes, and okay. that goes back to the, the, the initial point about consistency, that if all of our teachers are using a common formative assessment or common assessments, they're all gauging the same standards at the same time, and mm -hmm. it allows for those collegial conversations where they can determine which teacher has some strengths in particular areas, and they can assist their colleagues. Please, I was going to say, I think this goes back to Dr. DeFore's um, training, and that is assessment number one does not have to be this grandiose large thing. It can be a very simple two or three example mm -hmm. at the appropriate moment to determine whether that child needs further intervention. The idea is not to leave children behind, not to let them get too far behind mm -hmm. in their skill development so that it's three times or four times or five times as uh, hard to get them back and get them proficient. Mm -hmm. So it's short term, look at the child, does he have it, doesn't he have it, do something about it now. So in the remaining time we have, I want to just touch on two things quickly with you. One of them is a kind of a follow over. With 62% of your students learning the English language, tell me a strategy or a, a high leverage action that you, d you will do at the school to help those students get up to speed as quickly as possible so that they don't lag f so far behind their fluent English speaking peers. Um, one of the things that we do is, as I mentioned before, having consistent professional development school-wide. Um, when we do any type of professional development, we really look at the needs of our students. One of the things that our students were lacking was the ability to, when they're in, throughout the writing process or through in reading comprehension, it was hard for them to use their, use structures to be able to effectively write or reflect what it was that they were thinking. So we did a school-wide training in thinking maps. We had a former assistant principal that was trained and then we had two teachers that became trainer of trainers. And they do revisitation of this annually and talk about how this, using these thinking maps, which are graphic organizers to support a student's um, thinking process, these allow the students to then use their own thoughts to then answer questions based on a selection or write a paragraph or an essay based on something that they've learned. So this, uh, by using a graphic organizer that's aligned to the standards and that's aligned to the curriculum, it allows an English learner to then have a bank of ideas that were things that they thought of themselves and then use those ideas to respond appropriately to mm. whatever, whatever the, uh, the task is. What would be the main reason why students that live in poverty uh, generally tend to struggle academically? They don't have the opportunities and the experiences for us to build on. And so we have to scaffold and build in those experiences and build in vocabulary. 
and then we can take off on some of the things that, that we need to implement, but um, they come with a paucity of experiences and vocabulary, and mm -hmm. that's what we need to build. And the same is true with English learners. It's the vocabulary frequently that, that is in the way of, of, uh, of grasping concepts. So we need to make sure that they understand and that they have a connection of an English word mm -hmm. in their own language. Um, I wanted to further say that I think it is important to have um, a bilingual teachers, but more important than that, simply because they can, when a child gets stuck, uh, be able to make that connection. This vocabulary means this in your language, and aha, they have the experience. Um, but I think more important than even that is good teaching, mm -hmm. good basic teaching, and that's what I see by and large, at this school, there's a commitment and there's good basic teaching, and you can't get around that with materials or with structures or with programs because it's people that make them go. Well, Melissa and Marion, thank you so much for being on our program today. And uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us on this edition of Focus on Education. Please join us again in the future. Thank you.